I needed to apply to 400 plus jobs. And I applied for survival jobs. Nothing against the companies I'm mentioning now, like Target, Walmart, Uber, McDonald's, all of these people I applied to. But no one looked at my resume. And welcome to the Entry Story Podcast, brought to you by DiverseResumes.com. We highlight people's stories and their quest to find their dreams. I'm Shauna Campbell, here with your host, Dr. Mohammed Khalif. Hey, Mohammed. Hey, Shauna. It's finally episode two. Can you believe that? All right. So my interview was with Fahad Al-Nima. He's an immigrant engineer from Iraq who arrived in the United States in 2016 he is currently living with his daughter, Bana, in Chicago, Illinois, and has been through multiple wars and difficult times. He starts off talking about his early childhood and what that meant to him. I was born in 1982 to a middle-class, highly educated family. My father is a journalist, and my mother, she graduated from a, a French literature university, and she was working in the scientific department. And all my family, both sides, are highly educated. And as a culture in Iraq, you always need to be a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, or something else. That's just the culture, how it goes. Born in the 80s, at that time, Iraq, although was in the eight years long war with Iran, but it was a relatively comfortable life. It was a life that focused more on family values, on school, more focused on having like friends and social life. For me, early years, which I don't remember a lot in the 80s, but it mainly focused on, again, my family and going to school, back from school, and then waiting for the summer holiday to be with my friends, uh, whether in the same neighborhood or when we go to the club in summer where we go to the swimming pool. In the 90s, growing up more, again, the main emphasis was on the values of the family and the society, on respect, and on education. It was a really heavy focus on you need to get through your school, you always need to be successful, and you always need to be respectful as well of the elders and others in your life. And growing up, again, my life was, I would describe it as a young person. It was a fairly comfortable, although Iraq was going through a turmoil of you know, multiple wars and sanctions and all of that. But as a kid, I did not feel that. Uh, I guess looking back now, my parents worked really overtime to make sure that I and my brother and, and other family members don't feel that pressure. Life at, at that time, it was, again, pretty straightforward. You go to school, there was a basically two TV channels. This is a pre-internet I'm talking. So basically everyone would watch the same show talk about the same cartoon, go to the same school, basically, if you are from a certain neighborhood. And then you wait basically for summer break, or we have two weeks winter break as well. And uh, that would continue with me all the way till I joined my university. I completed my high school, which was one of the best high schools in Iraq, actually, maybe ranked three or four. I joined engineering university, to be very specific, materials engineering. 
it's not that I was very, very focused on engineering. I liked engineering. My brother is an engineer. My uncle is an engineer. Actually, two of my uncles are engineers, if I remember correctly. But for me, I did not like the medical field. I did not find myself there. So again, as a culture, either engineer or a lawyer or a doctor or a lawyer. So I decided to go to engineering. I don't regret that decision. It was really good experience. And during that time, again, Iraq was about to go into the third war of my life. Not that I did I know about it, but at that time, again, living in Iraq, now it's changed a little bit, like going into my late teenage years and early in the university, you start to travel and see other countries. It was all fun, all with the friends and family. And if I want to describe my life all in, in one sentence, it was education-oriented, family and friends focused and centered, and it was a normal life. It's so interesting how he explains his life as normal, but in a way that he assumes that we wouldn't think it was normal. You know, like, I guess your perception of normal is relative to where you're from. Yeah, and... If you look at his life, he lived through three different wars, right? So he was uh, born in the 80s, and that was when Iraq had a war with Iran. And then in the 90s, you had the Gulf War, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and then the U.S. and its allies intervened, and you had another war. And then in 2003, there was when Saddam Hussein was uh, believed to possess weapons of mass destruction, and then there was the third war that he lived through. And it is really interesting and it, and it kind of brings back the value of peace, right? And mm-hmm. how important it is to, you know, cherish every day in life. And we will hear throughout the interview, he talks about his experiences during the war. And I think when listeners hear his story, they're going to be just saying, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm already saying, wow, quite frankly. I did pick up on something as well. He mentioned about him wanting to be an engineer and his uncle was an engineer and his brother is an engineer and there seem to be very specified career paths that you kind of do you know like in uh, when you're a child everyone wants to be you know a fireman or something really specific it seemed like they already had those perceptions of what they might want to, to be from quite an early age yes i mean it comes down to tradition right i think mm. uh, something that is very valued in immigrant communities is tradition and how role models play a key role in our lives. We heard from Anne last week that how her father played a key role in her quest to become a doctor. And then again, you hear uh, Fahad's journey and how his uncles and, you know, that tradition of uh, becoming uh, an engineer. So, and he didn't like biology and medical sciences Anne didn't like maths, although Anne was really good in accounting. So I think that's mm. another, that choice is also important. <laughs> I agree. All right. <laughs> yeah. So after completing high school in 1999, Fahad is admitted to the University of Technology in Baghdad and starts his education in material engineering. During his fourth year of school in 2003, he found himself yet in another war. Fahad talks about the anxiety during that time and the different phases of the war. So right before the war, you would see there's a sense of anxiety around what you are seeing around you, the news you are hearing, the government is preparing, nothing personal that changed with me, but you can see a sense of anxiety. And then 
right up to the world when the university told us we are closing, and especially for students from outside the capital, that, that means their families, they need to go back to their families. They told us go home, and for those students, they need to go to their families. That's when the reality kicked in, and it's like we are going into the war, which was, of course, not easy. But as you mentioned, and I told you this before, there were two phases of the war. And I really reflecting on my story. I'm not saying the story for everyone is the same. The first phase of the war felt pretty much normal. And by that, I mean, I was still in my house, meeting with my friends. Basically, nothing happened. Apart, you don't have university. But we were very far, very, very far from the battleground. Very far. So, again, no pressure. Not seeing that, yes, there were bombings at night, but you don't feel frightened. Again, I am not reflecting the feeling of all the population in Iraq. A lot of people lost their lives. You leave your house in the morning, whether you are going to school, whether you are going to university or work or just going for shopping, you cannot guarantee you are coming back. And why is that? Because I will tell you a few examples. The U.S. Army and the Iraqi Army are well protected. So... Usually insurgency cannot attack them, or if they try to attack them, there will be collateral damage or they try to attack easy targets. That's in addition, of course, to terrorism and all of that. And then when all that led to the sectarian war, and that is the worst of everything, you start fearing your fellow citizen. You start questioning your fellow citizen and you cannot tell. And at that time, it's when I left Baghdad for the first time, like not traveling outside Baghdad. Of course, I traveled in my life before that, but leaving. And even when I left, I did not imagine this will be permanent. I thought it will be temporary, but it actually led to me leaving Baghdad for eight years. drawn to the concept that he thought that he would return to Baghdad really soon and it wouldn't be a long journey away. Some parts of the country were seeing more effects of the war than others, but we've just sat sat here and looked at three decades worth of war that's happening <laughs> on and off and different ones, but it kind of seems like there's a, a pattern happening. Yeah, again... I come back to this. I think it highlights the cost of war and mm. the lives that the lives of people and you know the people that become refugees and you know leaving the homeland and it reminds us of peace. One thing that really struck me is when he talks about the second phase of the war uh, and when you can't trust the people next to you, right? And when mm. you leave your house, uh, you don't know if you'll come back again. Uh, you don't know if you'll see your family again, and that fear of anxiety day to day. Like right now we go to work, we go to school, we come back, we see our children, we kiss our kids goodnight. It just kind of reminds you the value of peace. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it reminds us that we have to 
look after each other as well. Like being able to trust your neighbors is something that you should value, <laughs> you know? Definitely, definitely, definitely. I continued to talk to Fahad and he told me that in 2005, due to the war escalating in Baghdad, he and his fiance had to move to a city in the Kurdish region of Iraq called Arbil. This was the start of a long journey, which included migrating to multiple destinations and eventually led them back to where they started. Take a listen. In my last year of university, I got engaged to my fiance at that time. Her name is Saz. She is like of Kurdish origin, but she lived all her life in Baghdad. And when we got engaged and then the sectarian war and the violence started to happen, we decided in 2005 to go to the north region, what we could call in Iraq, Kurdistan region of Iraq. And we went directly to Erbil, which is the capital of the Kurdistan region. So we went there, we got married there. But before we got married, actually, and it was by coincidence, uh, when we went there, we did not know anyone. Although Saz is originally from Kurdistan, but she was not from the city of Erbil. She was originally her family, descends from another family, from another city, sorry. And when we went there, we did not know anyone. Basically, we decided to leave Baghdad because of the situation, of the security situation that was affecting everyone. And of course, you need to know when a security situation really collapses, the economy collapses with it. So we went to Arbil in 2005, late 2005. That's after graduation and after getting all our degrees and everything. And we went there and it was by pure coincidence that I see few friends who are very close to my family. And those friends immediately said, what are you doing here? And I described, and they mentioned, because they used to work with a non-government organization that worked with the U.S. government, they needed to move because of threats against their lives. So that their non-profit organization or non-government organization actually moved them to Erbil. So they said, okay, let us help you. Let us uh, try to help you find a place, because initially we stayed in a hotel. That's where you, you don't have a place to go. Erbil at that time, for people who can visit Erbil now or Google it, they will see a really a booming city. At that time, it was not. It was a small city. It's difficult to find even a place to rent. Not impossible, but just difficult. So they helped us. Just like when you move to another place, you always need help from someone. They're either before you or someone local. And they helped us first by, actually, we stayed with them for a few days and, and maybe a few weeks. And then they helped us find the place where we can rent. We rented a place and we got married. It was very, very small, maybe nothing to speak of ceremony because of our situation. So at that time, my brother, his name is Hassan, actually left Iraq and went to Qatar after the war. So between 2004, early 2004 to mid-2004 with his wife. My parents at that time both needed to return to Iraq to take care of a few things. My fiance at that time and later wife, Saz, parents were still in Baghdad, so but they also trying to figure out how they can get out. So we ended up not having a lot of people around us. And most of our friends either like fled the country to another country, either Jordan, Syria, or they were again scattered around. So it was a small ceremony. We found a small place to live and at that time, I started my first job. And I actually did not work as an engineer. I worked in, in an airport as a station coordinator or a station manager. The title does not that matter that much, actually. I was basically working with an airline, managing and coordinating all the ground services for that airline. And I stayed with that job 
until 2007, where my wife at that time got a miscarriage. And we need to understand the situation was really, really way better than the rest of Iraq. But services were still lacking behind in terms of health services, education, and so on and so forth. They were building up all these services. So because of her miscarriage, we decided to go to Jordan for treatment. And we stayed there. We stayed there until my wife was pregnant again. And we got our only daughter. Her name is Bana, was born December 31st, 2008, last day of 2000. And even her birth was with a lot of health complications. We stayed in Jordan, but we need to understand the situation in Jordan, economy-wise, is difficult. Jordan is a small country, is relatively with high unemployment rate, so you cannot compete with the locals as well. And my parents, between the what I described in 2005 and my daughter in 2008, they actually moved with my brother because the situation turned for the worse in Baghdad. They left everything. They left our house, and they went to live with my brother in Qatar. And when my daughter was born, and there was no way for me to find a proper job. So I found a couple of jobs. I worked with a nonprofit organization called People in Need. I worked with some projects here and there helping, but it was not a job to sustain a family. So I was left with two choices, either go back to Iraq. The situation still was not good. And actually, the sectarian war and the violence around terrorism was really at its peak around that time. So we decided to try our luck and go to Qatar to join my family. We went to Qatar in, if I am not mistaken, September 2009. Yes, or earlier than that, just a little bit. But it was 2000. Yes, 2009. So we stayed in almost eight months after my daughter was born in Jordan. We tried everything, but it did not work. We went to Qatar and it was there that I found my first engineering job. So you can imagine I graduated 2004 and five, but my first proper, proper engineering job was around 2009. The job in Qatar itself was really rewarding in terms of professional experience, professional development, I would say even salary to a certain degree, but it was not easy job. It was like a really long job, engineer job. And at that time, we stayed in Qatar for a couple of years, and I will explain why. Because first of all, my wife, Saz, was taking care of my daughter, Bana. And in Qatar, it's very expensive. It's extremely expensive place, and you need two people to work. Saz was not able to work because she was taking care of Bana, and we never get really accustomed to the country. We never felt we belonged there. And in 2011, the situation in Iraq slightly improving, not that much. But the situation in Erbil improved from two aspects. One, the economy improved because they started exporting oil and gas and they started investing heavily in infrastructure. And second, Saz's family, they actually all moved to Erbil. And at that time, there was another opportunity for us to move back. Saz and Bana moved before me until I finished my contract. And then I moved to Erbil. Now, at this time, when I moved to Erbil, my aspiration was to work as an engineer.
wow, you really do come full circle. Like, how many times was that in such a small space of time? I think I counted like four different countries, was it, that yes. he, he so moved he to? he starts off from Arbil, and he's there. His wife has a miscarriage. They moved to Jordan because of health services. And they stay there until yeah. his wife can become pregnant again. So they stay there for a couple of years. Then they move to Qatar. Then they come back again. So quite a journey. Yeah, that is a, a lot of moving. And I did pick up on the fact that he didn't get into engineering when he was in a deal or in Jordan until he got to Qatar. And that's when he started engineering again. But it seems like he's still quite interested in that as when he's moving back to a deal right at the end there. He he wants to go and continue to do be an engineer. Yeah, yeah. And looks like he said it was his first job until he had a proper engineering position because from his story you can tell that he never actually got the opportunity to apply for it no. he was in the middle of the war and trying to survive uh, the whole time so actually that was the first time he could find the opportunity to apply and shauna listening to that i think no one can deny that immigrants are the most resilient people on earth you know it just takes so much resiliency to be able to keep on moving on the go never stop and the trauma, you know, if you add a miscarriage and a lost baby and just going through that as a family is very difficult. There's a lot more than just that in that. It's like juggling finances and, you know, mentioning about wanting, need, both needing to have a job, but just doing what you need to do for your family, even though, I, you know, it's hard to follow your dreams when you're just kind of trying to find work based on what is in the place that you're living at any one time. But I definitely agree that's such a... I want to call it a skill, but it's not really something that you want to like pat someone on the back too much for like the reason behind it, but definitely just shows how resilient they are for sure. Yeah, you're right. You bring an important point. He talks about how expensive Qatar was and his daughter Bana had health problems. So both of them could mm. not actually work to support their family. One of the parents had to stay behind to take care of the daughter and it was very expensive for one person to, you know, live there and just imagine, you know, just saying that, hey, we can't afford peace and we can't afford to live in Qatar. We got to go back mm. to where we started because we can't afford to. And that really, you know, was eye opening for me. me OK, too. so it's 2011. Fahad and his wife, Saz, and his daughter, Bana, are back in Arbil, uh, where they started. He looks for work and eventually finds a job with the United States Agency for International Development, in short, known as USAID. During that time, he witnesses the Syrian refugee crisis and decides to be a part of the solution by joining the United Nations World Food Program. He talks about his community service, the risk to his life, and when he caught a lucky break. To take you one step back, when I returned to Erbil in 2011, that was around late spring, early summer, and I went... And I just explained that the economy actually improved a little bit. So my first intention was maybe to work again as an engineer, to continue my journey that I started in Qatar. But when I went there, the situation was different a little bit from what I imagined in terms of work opportunities. And at that time, I actually joined a local company. I did not spend a lot of time with them, so I will skip through that phase. But actually, at that time, I learned about an opportunity with USAID about building the local government capacity and helping improving the services that's provided to the Iraqi citizens. And I 
decided I want to join this. I want to join them because I felt I can provide some experience and be part of the services and the solution they are providing to the Iraqi population. So I applied for the job and I got the job. And that job was the second half of 2011 that I started working with USAID. I was based in Erbil, but my role was originally from Baghdad and especially from a city in the north called Kirkuk. And my role was I would do all, not only admin work and logistic work, but I will manage the operation from north while bringing trainers, arranging the training material, bringing the guests who are Iraqi officials who are working in the public service area and provide all the services related to this project. And in my role, I needed to be visiting our main office in Baghdad a few times and also visit the office in Kirkuk, which is also a sub-office a few times. Part of that project and that work, we organized a big, big event, which was focusing on the next five years planning for the Iraqi government in collaboration with the United Nations. And around that time, that's we started. Now I started the second half of 2011. Now we are in 2012. It was the Syrian crisis, the uprising, if you want to call it, and the start of the mass migration of Syrians to many, many countries, including Iraq. And when we completed this event, which was not related to Syrian refugee crisis, this event was focusing on Iraqi government and their next five years plans. I started learning about the work that the United Nations are doing addressing the Syrian refugee crisis, from housing to education to food to medical support. And at that time as well, we were wrapping up our work with USAID around the public service, uh, let's say, uh, capacity building project. I really, at that time, wanted, and this is again, we are in 2012, I wanted to be part of United Nations, and I wanted to be part of the great services they are providing and the humanitarian role they are playing in that crisis. I did not know what will come next at that point, but I wanted to be part of that. So I applied and I got into the job working with United Nations World Food Program. For short, it's WFP. Now, before I go into the WFP, part of working with USAID, or in Iraq, we call it for short, we call it USAID. I know it's not the name, but that's what we call it. When you work with them and you work on behalf of the U.S. government, there is actually a target on your back because you are, in views of few, you are part of the problem. You are not part of the solution. And because they cannot touch the U.S. army or the Iraqi army or the Iraqi government, you are the target. And actually, in that work, I was through various incidents. One time, the main road that goes into our office was targeted by an explosive. 
a few times, like we, you receive threats on your life and we will go into the visa part. But because of that, the U.S. government gave me the chance to apply what is called special immigration visa. So we will come back to that part, but just wanted to point it out here. I applied for United Nations. It took a long time for them to process job application. That's normal, just bureaucracy. And then I joined World Food Program. On That was if I'm not mistaken, in 2013. And little did I know, when I joined World Food Program, two things happened. There was the mass migration from Syria and Iraq, more than 200,000 people crossed the border. And little after that, the ISIS occupation of one-third of Iraq, which triggered almost one million internally displaced people. So when I joined, I joined into a real emergency crisis, humanitarian crisis that was happening left and right and center of the country. And I told you this, I really felt I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. I wanted to offer something that those people will see as a value, maybe something that will help them restart their life in any way possible. So when I joined World Food Program, I joined mainly, or I was mainly working on two projects. One is called School Feeding Project, which basically we worked with UNSF, another organization to build the schools. And we used World Food Program to bring school feeding program to help first the, the refugee families and internally displaced families to bring their kids into the school so they will have food and that's kind of encouragement. And also to encourage the local community to participate because we started purchasing food from the local community. And by purchasing, I mean from local farms and uh, local shops and local manufacturers as well. And then that's one one area. And then the second one that I was mainly working with World Food Program on what we call the monthly food packages that we distribute and services and assistance that we distribute to the internally displaced families and the refugees families. That was in 2013, 2014, and 2015, all these years. And late 2015 is when, and which is basically almost four years after I applied for the special immigration visa, is at that time, again, late 2015 is when I received the notification, is my process after all the vetting and security checks and medical checks is now being approved and processed. That's me now I am at an intersection, whether to stay in Iraq and with the situation not improving, when you see almost more than 1 million people internally displaced and you lose one third of your country, or find a solution. And again, I need to remember that there was a card, basically a cross on my back, and then decide to go with my, uh, at that time, daughter, wife and daughter. And that was the decision about the next move that will happen in finally in 2016. So that had me think, thinking about what you were saying previously about resilience. I mean, to go be like, no, I'm going to take a job that is given back to make sure I can help people, but I'm going to go into places that and into a position that puts a target on my back. And I'm not going to kind of stop doing that just because... It puts my life at danger is inspiring. Like, it, like wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that target on his back, working with the U.S. government or working with any nonprofit organization, like you're a sitting duck, basically. You're an easy target to kill. And many people actually lost their lives by doing that work and helping people and maybe giving out food to other people. But he was like, you know, I went through this. I went through multiple countries. I had to go to Jordan. I had to go to Qatar. I had to come back. And he mm. saw the same 
are refugee Syrian refugees kind of related to his story and he said you know what I need to help those kind of people I don't care if I'm an engineer I don't care if I'm not working as an engineer but I need to help those Syrian refugees I need to give out food and uh, I need to be a part of the solution that's a word that he always uses that yeah. I need to be a part of the solution I definitely noticed that solution being part of the solution being I needed to get to give back. I needed to make sure people didn't have to feel the way maybe he felt that himself or his family and his friends felt being displaced. Yes. It's late 2015. And after four long years, Fahad and his family have been given a green light to travel to the United States. This was a time of hope, happiness, but eventually led the family to split. In the next segment, he describes all that in detail. I would say even late 2015, I was informed that our visas, and you are right, it was Saz, Bana, and Fahad, now processed and ready. And after uh, we just needed to do one more medical check, that's normal. Uh, you do all security checks and all that thing, and you go to the embassy, you swear an oath and all of that. They check everything about you. But then finally, before they tell you, here's your visa, you need to do one more medical check. And we've done the medical check. Me and Bana, my daughter, at that time. Saz, for personal reasons and family reasons, she decided that she wants to stay. And at that time, we actually, that's another intersection, not only because of traveling, but our lives were taking two different directions. We decided to split up, but so bravely of her and taking the, like the care of our daughter, Bana, she decided, okay, this place is not stable. And I know this is my decision as an adult. But I want you to take Bana with you. And actually, the embassy, the U.S. embassy, because it's not normal for a single father to take a daughter who was at that time when we travel, she was eight years old, called Saz and asked her. And she said, yes, I'm staying, personal reasons, family reasons, and I'm giving permission to Fahad to take Bana. And at that time, we said our goodbyes, both literally and also in terms of marriage. And that's when I traveled to the U.S. Before I go into reaching the U.S., part of applying for special immigration visa, you need to select a state where you want to end up. And I did not do any research, just for the record. I just selected three friends. One friend lives in Houston, Texas. One friend lives in Chicago, Illinois. And the same friends I described when we went to Erbil, those same friends actually lives in Virginia. I selected those friends without doing any research. But in the end, I decided to go with the one in Chicago. That friend, actually, his daughter, was a friend with Bana when they were in kindergarten. Maybe. So we went into Chicago. That's without researching the economy, the weather, for sure, and also like everything around it, like we did not. So we reached, we permanently moved to the U.S. in August 2016. Wow, it took so long for that visa to come through. And uh... Like he describes, obviously, it's not normal for a single father to move over, but so much strength 
to make a decision like that, to be like, no, I, I understand that you need to go and I'm going to stay here or that you're going to go and you're going to end your marriage effectively and, and become a, a single parent. Like on both parts, I think I could see such strength. And I guess that comes as well from the resilience we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and I think it highlights what a lot of people don't understand when it comes to immigration. People think, oh, it's an easy decision. You get a visa to the United States or the West and easily, you know, you leave everything, you move. But during this moment, imagine having you know, a partner for so many years. You guys have a kid together. Uh, you move through so much trauma together. You go through different countries. Uh, you come back. You have all this journey together. And eventually, this decision of leaving the homeland and moving again to somewhere unknown, his wife then saw us, just said, I'm sorry, I can't come with you, but I understand this is not a great place for my daughter to grow up, and I want you to go. So I am, I can't imagine having that conversation. Mm. It must have been very difficult, very. I can kind of um, understand the what kind of decision, like, you know, not wanting to uproot again after having been moving around quite a lot already. I can understand maybe when you get to a point where you've got your family around you again, like they were describing having loads of family in Baghdad and then having no one and to then find a place that you have your family again, you have a support system around you, not wanting to uproot your life again as well. I can kind of see and connect to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they have a word for it, but I think it's migration fatigue, you know? Yes. Um, sometimes, you know, you're just traveling and traveling and traveling and you just get burned out. Mm. That's what I think. So it's 2016. Fahad is living with his daughter, Bana, in Chicago. He now needs to find a job, which was not easy. The process included finding a free coach to help him, applying to 400 jobs, getting rejected by minimum wage opportunities in Walmart, Target, and McDonald's, attending a network event, and finally passing a math test. I went in 2016 with some saving. Maybe that would take me three, four months maximum. If I'm lucky and I'm conservative uh, with my spending. So you start looking for a job. Now, to paint you a picture, in Iraq, we don't use resume. We use CV. CV in Iraq is not one page. It's seven pages, even if you are a fresh graduate, maybe. Everything goes into your CV. That's your picture, your date of birth, your marital status, your friends, your references. Even if you are part of a book club, you put everything there. In the U.S., that's a completely different story. Now, also being part of United Nations, that's another different story, different, completely different scene. And also, when you move to a new country, your friends or your community, like fellow immigrants, they might be your first point of contact. And what do they tell you? You need to find a job anywhere. In 2016, maybe there was no Amazon Flex. I don't recall that, but they will tell you Uber. They tell you go McDonald's, cleaner, grocery stores, all of that. But we need to remember, Uber, you need a car. And after a few months, then you can get an Uber. So luckily for me, at that time, before I started applying, the same friend, Paif, he told me, why you don't check Upwardly Global? Upwardly Global is an unprofit organization helping immigrants and refugees to restart their career. He told me about them for two reasons. Number one, 
is because they help immigrants and refugees. And number two, because he knows that my passion is to work in nonprofit in a humanitarian sector, especially around the project management. So he thought it's two possibilities here. They find you, they help you find your job, or maybe you join them one day. So I joined Upwardly Global. First thing they helped me with, and my coach Tamar helped me understand to forget about my CV and start focusing on my resume and the US style, and then help me to understand that I need to network and also help me what you mentioned, websites. Where do I apply? It's a completely different game from another countries. Do I only apply indeed as a recruiter? Do I apply directly? If I apply directly, you need to think I'm an immigrant. I maybe know two, three companies by name in the U.S. And in Chicago alone, maybe there are thousands of companies. How will I find their websites? I don't know about Indeed, for example, or other websites. You can fall victim to fraud and scammers and all of that. So Tamar coached me. But even with her coaching, I needed to apply to 400 plus jobs. And I applied for survival jobs. Nothing against the companies I'm mentioning now, like Target, Walmart, Uber, McDonald's, all of these people I applied to. But no one looked at my resume, probably because I was using the wrong resume as well. This is even before talking with Tamara and Upwardly Global. And I applied, and I told you this, I applied with a car spare parts manufacturing company in Skokie. That's north of Chicago. And I remember when I applied with very basic, very, very basic information. And I went, they do have an exam. It's a language exam and it's a math exam. Uh, you need to remember I was an engineer. So I took a pretty much advanced exam, uh, math in my school years. And the lady, I cannot forget her, she administered the exam and I gave her my answer. She said, why are you applying for this job? And I said, I need a job. I just need a job. And when I say I need a job, I need a job that will align with my situation, being a single father. So I cannot take a job that will take me a truck driver 20 days away from the apartment or just go through the night where I would leave my daughter. Legally, she cannot be alone. So I needed to have a balance. Luckily for me also, at the same time when I was applying for 400 jobs with Tamar and Upwardly Global Help, the 400 jobs did not go into vain. I was actually able to attend networking events and started having some results, interviews. And again, that was a difference. In Iraq, for example, this interview in Iraq would be very weird because I'm speaking about myself. That goes against our culture. You don't speak about yourself. You speak about the community. You speak about the collective effort, not your individual achievements. It's quite different here in the U.S. You need to have more emphasis on your achievements. And that was something Tamar coached me a lot with. I'm yet struggling with it to this day. So... Through Upwardly Global and through the networking part and through the interviewing, at the same time that I was about to get the job in the factory, I was lucky enough to learn about a job with Refugee One. 
That's a resettlement agency in the north side of Chicago. And I learned about it through another job application with another nonprofit. That nonprofit, that job did not happen, but because I was networking with them, they told me about Refugee One. And the job with Refugee One, it's not only because it's a job, but that job was to work with uh, refugees, especially youth, in the, let's say, between the age of 13 through 17, and help them with the school. So it goes back to my work with the United Nations. And again, helping families to settle down a bit. And I felt like I was just part of all this journey. can definitely share something. Maybe instead of, it took me almost, I would like to say four to five months to reach this level of getting this job. And I felt I can be part of, of helping those people navigate those four to five months, maybe shortening it. And I started working with them in their office in the north side of Chicago. And my role was to help with interpretation, to help with forms, to help with intake interviews, especially for youth, go to school, help with the families getting through the, you know, the, all the paperwork to get refugees, kids into a school. I've done this myself, so I know how to do it. So, and I was helping that, helping them. And luckily for me, by March, 2017, so I worked with them early 2017, January and February. And in March 2017, that's when Upward Global, there was an opening, an onboarding associate, an entry-level job that will help screening application and helping refugees and immigrants through some technical trainings to connect them with a coach like Tamar, the one I just mentioned, my coach. And I decided this is the next journey. This is the next step I want to take. And that's what happened after that. There were definitely a couple of things I noted from that segment, I think. The first one was a seven-page CV. Like, what? I don't think I can fill seven pages. <laughs> but I also noted about, like, him having to the time of applying. You know, he mentioned, oh, well, I don't have Indeed and I don't have in this. And, like, I suppose it's not even just the country that you live in. It's also the time that you're living in as well, like the way you apply for jobs have changed so dramatically in such a short space of time. And then having to come from, I think he described having to go to specific internet cafes to access the internet in his childhood. That's such a, a complete, like, 180 from what you would have experienced. And the last thing I, I noticed, like, feeling weird about speaking about yourself and I, I never really thought about that kind of culture difference not speaking about yourself but speaking about the community but I kind of like it yeah yeah I mean that's the thing about the difference between the western culture and the culture that he came from because he said to shine in the United States or to shine in you know a job he had to kind of talk about himself he had to say uh, why is he good for this opportunity and he had to say I am this and I'm that and I can do that. But that in his culture, that is a big no-no. That is considered selfish. And that you don't do that. You don't talk about yourself. And you bring an important point, which is very interesting. And he also talks about, you know, the bias that he had to go through. Because he applied to multiple jobs in Walmart, Target. He applied to different jobs uh, in different areas. And he said 400 jobs. Shauna, can you imagine applying to 400 jobs? Absolutely not. No, especially when you've got like so many skills that you could be so specific in as well. But I think I would have given up after about 150 if I would have got there. <laughs> it's that resilience you were talking about before. <laughs> Me too. 
Me too. Me too. Uh, because you know, it, it's not just uploading a resume, right? You got to you got to mm. do that. Your cover letter. You got to mm. you know do all those kind of stuff. You got to fill out applications, and then interviewing. I mean, some people are just this hiring is very subjective. Even if you have you know all the qualifications, is about mm. references, right? And just you know doing that networking contacts and. The other thing was passing the math test. And when he said, you know, he took high level math and this, you know, spare part company gave him basic tests and was like, wow, what are you, why are you applying to this job? Yeah. I did like, have a little chuckle at that as well. But it's like, you know, I've got to do what I do. I've got my daughter in the background. But yeah, it's like, um, the perception that all immigrants must not be skilled as well is a little bit like, what do you mean? <laughs> All right, so that was the entire interview. What did you think about everything, Shauna? If you could summarize, and what do you think about the, this interview? Because I think it was very interesting. I did. I thought it was it was very interesting in terms of a great understanding of a, like quite a different culture to what I'm familiar with. In, you know, key things being it like you know picking fifty universities and then the, you know just being like I've had my career path from quite young, which I, I wish I kind of had a little bit of a path. But what was most inspiring is that even though, you know, they had to pick up their lives multiple times, they still wanted to give back. He, well, Fahad wanted to give back to other people in his situation who has having similar experiences. And actually, he started as a, an engineer and he gave it a good try when he could, but he's now found a love and a passion in something he probably never even thought was something he would a road he would go down when he was first like going to university so it's amazing what you your experiences and where you could be taken just from you know just going where you need to be just to survive i think it's very inspiring I think the word that you used i like it inspiring i think resiliency he's been through a lot of challenging times tough times and eventually, you know, he made it out. And right now he works with a nonprofit organization called Upwardly Global. And shout out to them because they help a lot of immigrants and refugees who come to the United States and help them find jobs. And they provide free coaching and, you know, help people like Fahd. So if you're a listener out there and you want to help people like Fahd, please go to UpwardlyGlobal.com and donate whatever you can, a dollar or two, anything helps. So, yeah, he's working there. He's a coach there right now at that nonprofit. He loves what he does. He told me that he sees people like him every day who are looking for jobs and going through those same roadblocks and barriers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's, he's just happy to make a difference. Good to give back. <laughs> yep. Yep. Before we go, I asked Fahad one last question. Take a listen. If you would have a chance to go back and, you know, maybe talk to that Fahad, give him some words of inspiration. What would you say to him? Yeah, thank you, Mohammed. And by the way, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. This is really valuable time for me that I'm talking to you. If I go back, and it's a very nice question, first of all, I would not change anything. Continue doing your journey, Fahad. What happened in 2005, it's what made me today. I might say just maybe actually trouble faster like it turns off like earlier <laughs> but no actually i would not change anything take everything into this journey things will go bad things will improve but believe in in your fellow humans and your friends and your family and the community you're not part of and always try to be part of the solution don't 
only look to take, but also try to give when possible. And don't be afraid of asking for help. If you don't ask, you will not get an answer. And the worst thing that can happen if you ask is someone will tell you, I cannot help you. But there are millions of possibilities when you ask, many, many doors will open. And again, just being part of a community, part of a greater cause, it will be great. So trust in the journey and just go ahead and do it. You will be good. You will be okay. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We value your input. So please tell us what you think in the comment section below. Also, be sure to subscribe to get updates on future episodes. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We are at Entry Story Pod and you can like us on Facebook. Have a wonderful day.